Hi, I run a uh, comedy radio show. Can I get you to do a station ID? No, no, no I'm, okay. I'm no. doing all, all right. my fans right now. Uh, if you'll wait after the show, but right now... Um, Your host, Reverend Bill M., brings us the devil's mischief, carnal comedy clips, netherworld novelty of numbers, brought to you by RadioFreeSatan.com. Episode number 673. Bill M. here with the devil's mischief on Radio Free Satan. Earlier in November, I got the news that Gallagher had suddenly died. So I knew a tribute was in order for him. I was busy, though, trying to finish two episodes of Satan's Plane and also make the annual Thanksgiving leftovers special of The Devil's Mischief. So I knew that, unfortunately, a tribute to Gallagher would have to wait. Also, recently, I stumbled across a book that I guess was released last year, a George Carlin book titled A Modern Man, The Best of George Carlin. I found it in a store, so I bought it, naturally. And... It's just a compilation of various pieces of some of his books that he published. So I knew I wanted to include some audio recordings of Carlin reading some of those same book excerpts. As I mentioned, though, I recorded three podcast episodes, and I did that just in time because I could feel myself coming down with something. And I knew that the time was then and now to record while I still had a voice. I have been very sick since then, so if I sound a little strange or stuffed up, that's the reason why. I'm still trying to kick this upper respiratory infection. In any case, here we are in Devil's Mischief, episode number 673. This episode is all about Gallagher and George Carlin. Also, I think this is an interesting contrast, so I'd like to talk for a little while about all of that before we begin. In fact, not just a little bit. This is going to be a long kind of rant. So uh, if you want to fast forward to the comedy, I don't take offense. I won't blame you. So Gallagher. Gallagher was a comedian who has long been hated by a lot of people. Hated especially by other comedians. They just hated him. Some of this has to do with some of the questionable troubles he had in his personal life, some of which may argue was his own fault in the way he would treat people. But a lot of the hatred leveled at him has been for his comedy, and personally, I never really understood why. Gallagher was easily the most famous prop comedian Comedians, you know, a prop comedian, comedians who use props on stage as part of their act. Prop comedians get a lot of hatred. And again, I don't really understand why that is. Different comedians have different approaches to their art and how they craft it. Some comedians are more visual than others. I don't see what's wrong with comedians who decide to use props or incorporate music or stand there empty-handed or however they choose to do their act. Carrot Top comes to mind also when people think of prop comedians. And once again, Carrot Top, another example, so widely hated and deeply hated by so many people. He's the butt of so many jokes. And once again, I've I've never shared that hatred of him either. Now, is Carrot Top the kind of deep social commentator like George Carlin or Bill Hicks? No, he's not. But 
again, like, who cares? I wouldn't consider him a hack. I think he has his own, you know, original thing going on, successful. I went to see Carrot Top live before. Had a good time. But this brings us back to this episode with Gallagher and George Carlin, because a lot of people see these two comedians as being polar opposites. They think of George Carlin as, of course, this brilliant thinker and philosopher and risk-taker, but then think of Gallagher as this safe, family-friendly comedian with a mundane act. Oh, he just smashes watermelons on stage, so what? Well, I grew up watching both Gallagher and George Carlin as a kid. I would rent the comedy specials on VHS from both of them, caught them on cable when I could, and then expanded that to buying and owning their videos for myself, trying to see them live in concert when I when I could. And uh, uh, frankly, I think George Carlin and Gallagher have more similarities than differences. Now, all of Gallagher's obituaries not surprisingly describe Gallagher as being famous for smashing watermelons with a sledgehammer. But uh, anybody who has seen a full Gallagher performance knows that he was way more than that. In the introduction to George Carlin's book, Brain Droppings, Carlin says that his own comedy, that is, George Carlin's comedy, tended to fall into one of three categories. The English language, and then what he calls the little world, and what he calls the big world. So the first category, the English language, you know, commentaries about euphemisms, word games, puns, and so on. The little world is uh, what Carlin, you know, it's observational humor. You know, did you ever notice this and that? And then finally, the big world, the third category, it's uh, social commentary, commentary about culture, politics, the environment, and so on, the big world. Well, I would say Gallagher's comedy also drew from those three things a lot. Yeah, he did have props. And yeah, smashing food on stage was one of those acts that he did. But then he also had routines about the English language. He had uh, observational humor, of course. In fact, both Gallagher and Carlin have been credited with popularizing a lot of that in the stand-up comedy world. And Gallagher had the big world stuff, commentary on government and politicians and culture and so on. So I'm going to read you a bit of a biography on Gallagher, which I I put together from a few different sources. Especially since I know a lot of you listeners from outside of the U.S. may not know who Gallagher was. The comedian known by this one-word stage name of Gallagher, he was born Leo Anthony Gallagher in 1946 in North Carolina. He lived in Ohio as a child and then moved to Florida at the age of nine, He went on to graduate from the University of Southern Florida in 1970 with a degree in chemical engineering and a minor in English literature. After college, he decided, though, that he wanted a career in comedy instead. He moved out to California, where he began developing his comedy act. He got to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson in 1975. Also a few other well-known night shows at the time. It was after this that he got into long-standing, a long-standing relationship with Showtime, the cable TV station. His first comedy special was called An Uncensored Evening. Some sources are saying that uh, this was the first 
comedy stand-up special ever to air on cable TV, but I don't think that's the case. Since the date of that was 1980, and George Carlin had already had two specials of his own on HBO by then. Regardless, Gallagher ended up doing 14 comedy specials and then a few more after that. I get a total count of 17. And yes, his most famous routine is the Sledge-O-Matic. You have to realize that back in the day, there were a lot of advertisements for different food processors and blenders and all of these sorts of kitchen tools for chopping and processing food. One of them was called Vegematic. It was this non-electric food slicer. And the commercials for it were played a lot on TV. They would say, it slices, it dices, it does this, it does that. And as with most things that get pushed in pop culture, there are plenty of comedy parodies of that. On Saturday Night Live, there was the sketch called The Bassomatic to make a blended juice out of a fish. Uh, Frank Zappa did some parodies too. And yet another one of these was Gallagher's routine, Sledgematic. So instead of a fancy, sophisticated kitchen tool, Gallagher would bring out a giant sledgehammer on stage and show you how you can similarly use it to smash all sorts of food to pieces. He would typically close his night with the sledgematic routine, finally ending it with smashing the biggest fruit, a watermelon. And yes, if you haven't seen this before, people in the audience would typically get covered with food. Usually, they would come prepared in the first couple of rows wearing, uh, you know, raincoats or bringing plastic sheets for pr protection against that. Um, again, that is the routine Gallagher is best known for, but he was always so much more than that. I can't emphasize that enough. I saw him in 2014 where he did a two-hour show with no props. Actually, he brought out one prop for one joke at the very, very end, but that was it. And he totally killed. He was hilarious. I tried getting a station ID from him that night for The Devil's Mischief, but I think I came off as one of those douchebag FM radio DJs who wasn't really a fan, so he said no. Oh well. I got to meet him anyway. Now, despite all of Gallagher's great comedy, he had a number of controversies, and some of these ended up hurting his career. Back in the early 1990s, Gallagher's younger brother, Ron, was doing some comedy shows of his own and asked for permission to use the Sledgematic routine. Gallagher said, okay, you can use it, but just make it very clear in the advertisements that, you know, you're Ron Gallagher performing. You're not the Gallagher, you're his, his brother. So that happened, and then after a while, Ron started billing himself as Gallagher II, spelled either T-W-O or T-O-O, and that led to a lot of confusion. So finally, in the year 2000, Gallagher sued his brother for trademark violations and false advertising. But by then, the damage had been done, because even up to just before Gallagher died, I would always run into people saying, well... I see Gallagher is doing this performance in town, but, you know, I don't know whether it's really him or his brother. Even though that was like, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Go figure. So Gallagher also shows up in the news typically negatively after that. Like Ted Nugent, it seems the press, you know, just hated Gallagher. 
In 2004, Comedy Central had a list of the top 100 stand-up comedians of all time, and he was in at number 100. Just made the list. And he was kind of pissed. I'd say rightfully so, because above him in the list were people like Janine Garofalo and other people Gallagher himself had never heard of. But, of course, the press portrayed him as an ungrateful dick. And in 2011, he was on Mark Maron's podcast, where he famously stormed out. And, of course, from the 1990s onwards, he was getting attacked by the PC police. Even just recently, I saw a post about Gallagher from the band Fishbone saying they were sorry to hear about his passing and that Gallagher had helped them out back in the day by having them, uh, having Fishbone as supporting acts. I did not know that. But sure enough, idiots in the comment section went on about, oh, Gallagher was racist and homophobic and blah, blah, blah. And of course, people didn't waste any time with comments like that in the headlines in his obituaries from, you know, Rolling Stone and other stupid virtuous, virtue-signaling publications, which, of course, people have been using on Wikipedia. You know, a racist, and in superscript, here are four articles we can use as sources for that. Now, what can I say? People suck. Anyway, Gallagher was performing up until the COVID lockdowns, Though throughout the years, he had some heart problems. He collapsed on stage from a minor heart attack in 2011, another heart attack a year later, which was more serious. And Gallagher died November 11th, 2022, in hospice care at the age of 76. And uh, Bill Kirkenbauer, who I'm good friends with, he he has a great half-hour eulogy on Gallagher that he put on his YouTube channel. Um, I first heard of Bill through Gallagher, through uh, Gallagher's special called Melon Crazy, where Gallagher pauses his act in the middle and brings out Bill to do a comedy routine. Now, people who know of Gallagher only as a prop comedian may be wondering, Bill, how can you play him on the devil's mischief? I mean, obviously, you can't see any of his props. And the reality is, I have, in fact... Featured Gallagher on the show before, in 1980, he did release a comedy album. A simple self-titled album, black and white cover, two tracks, side one, side two. So let us now listen to the first half of side one of that Gallagher album. Tonight's show will be a round-robin affair. I'll come around to each of your tables and entertain you individually. <laughs> we'll just start in the middle and kind of move out. Start with you? <laughs> no, everyone starts with you. Well, we have a good group here tonight. I don't know, people just seem to like a crowd. Have you noticed that? The bigger the crowd, the more people show up for it. <laughs> you have a small crowd, nobody shows up. Probably don't know this, I'm an astrologer. If you'll call out your astrological sign, I'll tell you a little bit about yourself one at a time, please. Pisces, Pisces sign to the big mouth, first to call out in any group. 
okay. Everybody makes mistakes. Even our maker makes mistakes. Look around the room. I like to make jokes about ugly people. I figure who's going to come up after the show and complain, you know? Hey, man, I resemble that remark. I like to see two ugly people holding hands in love. You know, I figure it gets them both out of circulation. Those... I don't know if it's a good idea to have them together, though. They might be home now, frumping up a whole new generation of little bitty ugly people. People sit around and contemplate their navel these days. I contemplate my nose and note its imperfections. Do you think it's a good idea to put a wet, drainy thing like that upside down over your mouth? It's unsafe, it's unsanitary. If the health department saw it, you'd have 10 days to fix it or move out. But where else could you put your nose? Like every place out of the way's got kind of a stink touch. Couldn't put it around there and there. Couldn't put it back there. You could switch it with your belly button, that way your face would look like a bowling ball. But then every time you sneezed, your zipper would whistle. Or your dress would fly, go choo. Eskimos would have to drop their pants to kiss. That'd be worse. <laughs> I think it'd be neat if the parts of your body really were parts and you could mix and match and move stuff around, wear something out to get some new, you know, send stuff out to get it chrome. <laughs> Say you're laying in bed on a Saturday morning, your woman says, get your ass out of bed. You go, here, take it, leave me alone. <laughs> you could ask her for a piece, you might just get it. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, if your knees bent the other way, what would a chair look like? <laughs> you people ain't thinking about this stuff. <laughs> well, you ain't smoking what I'm smoking. Now, I'm not advocating use of any illegal smoking materials by members of our society that do not wish to do so. Although I think it's a good idea for old people, it makes the time go slow. <laughs> Could add years to retirement. Get your grandma a lid of Columbia and a ton of yarn and get back in Afghan to cover the garage. <laughs> Set her down, let her rock out. <laughs> Some of you don't know what I've been talking about. We have some informative pamphlets for you on the way out. We have uh, everything you ever wanted to know about dope but could never remember the questions long enough to ask. And How to Roll a Joint Without Looking by Jose Feliciano. All available. Oh, yeah? This blind man goes in the drugstore. Starts knocking stuff off the shelves with his cane. Man comes over and says, can I help you, sir? He says, no, I'm just looking. <laughs> I thought you wouldn't laugh at a joke like that. You think I don't know the value of handicapped people in a society? You're wrong. If it wasn't for handicapped people, I never would find a parking space. <laughs> oh, you don't do that, do you? You don't use that stall in the bathroom. You use the big wide one with the monkey bars, do you? <laughs> That's a good place to park. Just about the time you sit down, you see some wheels come rolling up. If you're smart, you'll limp out, you know? There you go, guy. Just warming it up for you.
ideas that might benefit the handicapped. You know them houses out by the airport nobody wants to live in? Why don't we give them to deaf people? <laughs> I didn't offend any deaf people, but I don't guess they heard that joke. <laughs> I could save us some money, too. Do the missionaries come by your house about every other day? Well, why don't we give them the mail to deliver? <laughs> They're already in the neighborhood. They're going to ring every damn bell. Just let him say, hello, God loves you and wants you to have your bill. <laughs> they say since Proposition 13, we don't have enough money now for dam inspectors. I say, good, we don't need no dam inspectors. <laughs> if you got a house downstream from the dam, your ass ought to be up there checking for crap. <laughs> now, these ideas ain't any dumber than the government. You know what the government calls the department in charge of everything outdoors? Department of the Interior. <laughs> the only word you can't use. Sounds like it ought to be staffed by decorators instead of bureaucrats. Could you see like a decorator in charge of Hoover Dam? Uh, this whole wall has to go. <laughs> masonry, masonry, masonry. Win windows, let in the light. <laughs> I do that good, don't I? Well, I'm from Hollywood. Living in Hollywood's like living in a bowl of granola. What ain't fruits and nuts is flakes. I was going to tell a Catholic joke. Are there any Catholic people here tonight? Well, would you mind if I told a little Catholic joke? This raggedy-ass old nun... Is, uh, is wandering home from the convent. She has to go through the park. Now, this dude jumps out of the bushes, drags her back in there, and has his way. <laughs> then he says unto her, he says, saying, what will you tell the Holy Father now? She says, I must tell the truth. I must say, I'm walking home from the convent when this man jumped out of the bushes and raped me twice, unless you're tired. <laughs> That's as dirty as my show gets. Because they say cleanliness is next to godliness. Why did they say that? I looked it up in the dictionary. Goggles is next to godliness. <laughs> cleanliness is next to claustrophobia and cleavage. You can look it up. But people are always telling you stuff you don't need to know. People tell you to eat before you go to the grocery store. That way you don't buy so much. Well, that don't work with the liquor store, does it? <laughs> You go there drunk, you buy everything they got. <laughs> Let me have that 55-gallon uh, drum of ruffle right there. Right? <laughs> I consider drunk as a mind-expanding experience. It allows me to make new connections, you know. I ask new questions I never asked myself or others before. I say you know, things like, uh, what makes a Teflon stick to the pan? <laughs> Why does a cowboy wear two spurs if one side of the horse goes so does the other? 
if M&M's melt in your mouth but not in your hand, what do they do say under your arm? <laughs> do you have to brush your teeth during a fast? <laughs> and why do they call it a fast when it goes so damn slow? <laughs> and when yogurt goes bad, how can you tell? Why do they call them buildings when they're already done building them? They ought to call them built. <laughs> or crumblings, you know. Living that crumbling over there. Hello, this is Weird Al Yankovic, and you're listening to The Devil's Mischief on Radio Free Satan. Warlock Jeff Ivans, the host of the Radio Free Satan show, The Metro. Tune in to The Metro for the hits of the 1980s. Radio Free Satan's weekly time travel of the new wave and other songs that brought a sense of high hair and indulgence to the masses. You are listening to The Devil's Mischief on Radio Free Satan. Visit the official website for the show, devilsmischief.com. You can also email me, bill at devilsmischief.com is the email address. I was going to continue with excerpts from the Gallagher Vinyl Record, but I'd like to play you this routine next instead. This is from his comedy special called Totally New, and it's a routine about school and the English language and the absurdities of the English language, particularly when it comes to spelling. I picked this one because it doesn't have too much of any visuals. He does, however, bring a school desk out to stage with a school bell resting on top. Then he sits down and he performs this routine. Am I the only one thinking about this stuff? No! Creative thinking, recreational thinking. This is what I hope that I bring to you people tonight. You can... The problem is the schools, the schools, they don't teach us how to be different. They teach us how to be the same. Right, guys, gang, girls? Remember school where you go to learn to communicate and all they say is no talking? makes no sense. It stifles the creative person who has questions to ask. Why are all the home ec teachers divorced? <laughs> I, remember the, I remember at the very beginning, nursery school seemed strange to me. I heard a nursery rhyme about the three bears. Okay. Bear comes home, finds a blonde in his bed. He's pissed off because he's out of little porridge. <laughs> it makes no sense. So I would ask questions about these things, you know, and then I get in trouble for acting smart. <laughs> acting smart in school. Oh, excuse me. Get sent to the dean for acting smart. Uh, Gallagher, what's the matter with you? I'm okay now. <laughs> you can send me back. should be asking people to be different. I think in America, 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 
where you ask these questions. I'd raise my hand and she knew I was screwing around with her, you know. So I'd have to, I'd have to raise my hand. Like I just thought of something very clever. Uh, what makes the Teflon stick to the pan? If a duck eats and goes in the water, does he get the cramps? When yogurt goes bad, how can you tell? <laughs> See, they don't want to hear these things. Can't answer. Why does a cowboy wear two spurs? If one side of the horse goes, so does the other. <laughs> Why do they call them cowboys? Cows is girls, bulls is boys. Ought to be cowgirls and bull boys. Why do they call a statue a bust when it stops right before the part it'd be named after? Why do they call them buildings when they're already done building them? Ought to call them built. Why do they call it a TV set when you only get one? And why do they call a woman's prison a penal colony? <laughs> I ended up getting a degree in English literature, finally, because I like the language. It's a good language. In fact, it's an advantage we have over the Japanese because theirs is dumber than ours. <laughs> I remember I went there the first day to learn to read. I was real excited. I was going to learn to read. I didn't know about sex, so this was it. She's gonna learn to read. Oh boy, I'm ready to go. And she, and she says, okay, first word you're gonna learn to read is big. Oh boy, I know big already. I know the meaning. So I got ready. She went, one thing, two things, three things. I said, damn, that's little for big. I said, that's little. She said, no, this is little. It was twice as big. I said, this is gonna be hard. <laughs> but I knew it was, because I tried to learn to read ahead of time. I'd ask my dad signs on the roadside. What does that say, Dad? He'd say, good food. I'd say, why? They both end in O-O-D. Those words ought to rhyme. It ought to be good food. <laughs> or good food. Why is it good food? It doesn't matter. Why should I be serious about the language if the language isn't serious enough to make sense? Right, gang? Well, let's take the word bomb. B-O-M-B, right? Bomb? Bomb. B-O-M-B? All right. T-O-M-B. Tom? No. Tomb. All right. T-O-M-B. Tomb. C-O-M-B. Coom? Calm. All right. C-O-M-B. Calm. P-O-M-B. Pong? No. P-O-E-M. Pong. All right, P-O-E-M, poem. H-O-E-M, home? No, H-O-M-E. All right, H-O-M-E, home. S-O-M-E, some? No, some. All right, S-O-M-E, some. N-O-M-E, numb? No, N-U-M-B. <laughs> worse. 
W-O-R-S-E, worse, H-O-R-S-E, hearse, horse, laughter, L-A-U-G-H-T-E-R, laughter, D-A-U-G-H-T-E-R, daughter. <laughs> no, and you and me. <laughs> well, let's see, what are some others? A-C-H-E, ache, is this a mistake? No, mustache. B E A R D. Beard. H E A R D. Herd. This is a bird. G O. Let's get simple. G O. Go. D O. Do. Do. Now, this ain't two words off in the side of the corner we don't use anymore. This is go and do. <laughs> All right, D-O, do, N-O, new? No. This shit don't make sense. I'm quitting. Hi, this is Pat Oswalt, and you're listening to The Devil's Mischief on Radio Free State. Bill M. here with The Devil's Mischief on Radio Free Satan. Be sure to check out the other shows that we have on Radio Free Satan. In fact, a brand new show has come to Radio Free Satan. It's called The Naked Satanist. At the time of this recording, episode number one is out. You can have a listen to that. But we also have shows like Vox Satane with Magister Jean, always filled with classical and orchestral music of all kinds, all very expertly curated by the Magister Gene himself. That's Vox Satane on Radio Free Satan. There's also the other end of the musical spectrum, like The Metal Grotto with DJ Warlock, Hell on Wheels. I wonder what's up with Clint Mephisto. I haven't heard him in forever. He had a show. Clint Mephisto's Shake Kick and Road Show. Did he drink too much of the PBR and go into a coma or something? I don't know. I guess sometimes you don't know what to expect on Radio Free Satan. I've got George Carlin to play in the second half of this episode, but right now, let's continue with more of that 1980 Gallagher vinyl record. I don't know how a forest fire can start from a little thing. (laughs) Sounds a little bit like an English ambulance. Then into the distance. Do you ever get the hiccups? That must just knock you on your ass. Are you with her? You're with her? Wonder what she does in the bedroom. I hope you don't laugh like that. <laughs> well, laughing's okay as long as you don't point. <laughs> Gee, I hate to go back to my act. It seems so boring. <laughs> 
I just wanted to mention, how can a forest fire start from a little thing like a cigarette or a match? I can't get nothing happening in my hibachi with kerosene and hand grenades. <laughs> if they discover mother's milk causes cancer, where are they going to put the warning? <laughs> and I wonder, why does a man have nipples and no tits? Does a plumber put a faucet on the wall? No pipe. <laughs> Is it bad taste to give a digital watch to a one-armed man? <laughs> My dad used to ask me stupid questions. He'd say, you want your face slapped? <laughs> No, but I could use my butt kicked when he said. <laughs> That's why they call it rearing a child. I wonder, did uh, Indians bother with bald cowboys? I mean, why take a scalp? What are they going to do with a beanie? <laughs> this bugs me, too. When one falls out of my head like this one here, I often wonder, like, what the hell did it in yesterday? It needs washing, but I'm not going to wash it. I figure it's going to fall out. It can take the goddamn dirt with it. <laughs> it needs cutting, too, but you don't prune a dead tree, do you? <laughs> I don't even comb it. I figure the tangle's holding half of it in. <laughs> Big deal, parallel hair. Who needs it, right? <laughs> They say it's hereditary, you know, they say it's in your genes, but that's wrong, I got hair in my genes. <laughs> I need it in my hat. I guess you look at this, you say to yourself, well, I bet he don't get much. Well, you're wrong. I don't get any. <laughs> I got a question here for this sexually liberated society that we live in. If your woman leaves you for another woman, should you hold the door for both of them? <laughs> It is a sexually confusing society. You never know what or who you're talking to. What were the idea of transsexuals? Oh, look at that woman right there. <laughs> Might be a man's spirit trapped in that body. I applied it to myself. I thought, well, maybe there's a female spirit trapped in my body, and I don't know it because she's a lesbian. <laughs> How would I know? I like some girl's stuff. Always felt safer on a girl's bike, for instance. <laughs> Does it seem reasonable to you that the one with the balls gets one with the bar? <laughs> you people mostly vegetarians? Yeah. Not me. I like wieners. <laughs> People will tell you not to eat this stuff. But I'm telling you, you better eat it. Because it contains chemicals. You need to build up your resistance to chemicals. See, if you lead a pure life, you don't get no chemicals, and then you get some of this by accident, it's going to lay your ass out dead.
I'm building up my resistance right now. I read where lecithin could make you smart. Did you read that? You need 30 grams a day to be smart. Then they told you where you could get that lecithin, in eggs. Every egg contains 1.2. Sounds smart, you gotta eat two dozen damn eggs. You got an exam, you wanna be smart, you gotta have an omelet the size of a throw rug. They don't figure you're gonna figure this stuff out. Most of you people college students? I don't like college students. They always have this attitude like they're so smart, you know? They're in school, something ain't together. You don't go to the hospital and find people bragging about their health. Do you ever exhale? I went to school. I went to college for six and a half years. It was a real long war. I have a degree in English literature. What are you gonna do with that? If you don't teach, what are you gonna do? Open up a poem repair? What was your major? What is it? Math and sociology. Counting people. <laughs> we can get you a job here at the door. <laughs> we got a lot of girls all in a kind of a group. Are you all college girls? Well, are you good girls? Are you? Well, that's why you don't have dates. What? What's the matter, man? Something happened today? Your mother make you wear that shirt? Did your mother used to lay your clothes out on the end of the bed like a little flat person? <laughs> put the shirt and then the pants bent over the edge and went down. Then put the shoes next to the feet and put the socks in the shoes. I used to put my underwear in my pocket. I left it there. <laughs> I figured it was a spare. You know? Come in handy a couple times, too. There's one article of clothing, though, I uh, can't discuss too much because it doesn't concern me, pantyhose. I consider pantyhose a sexual deterrent. <laughs> Why else do they reinforce the crotch? <laughs> it's a knee gets all the wear. Ought to be a big double knee on them. I used to uh, wear my socks over my shoes so when my laces came untied, I didn't trip over them. <laughs> but I've always been ahead of my time. You know? 
I knew school was stupid when I was a little kid. I used to play hooky, and when they catch me, you know what they do? They kick me out. And that stupid punishment, you know? <laughs> he won't come, we won't let him, you know? <laughs> Fix his ass. But I like church. Church was a weekly reminder there was something worse than school. <laughs> I'm kind of into knowledge more than I am into sex these days. I'm kind of an infomaniac. <laughs> Why, are you people still into sex? I'm beyond it. I'm over the hump. <laughs> A lot of coughing. You smoker? You don't smoke? Well, you ought to. You already got a cough. <laughs> I think you do. I'm going to light up now. It'll make the last part of the show longer. <laughs> I'm only doing this because of the law. If you don't use it on stage, you can't write it off your income tax. <laughs> I ain't paying $50 a lid for shit and not writing it off. I put it down under transportation. Satan Splain, Satanic Talk with Church of Satan Magister Bill M. Well, it's not Satan worship, it's Satanism. It's embracing the life-enriching things which have traditionally been given the devil's name. Pride, lust, earthly success, rational self-interest, atheism, humor, nonconformity, science, a passion for living, being selective about whom we love. We don't see these as shameful sins, but empowering ideals. And we also recognize the psychological power and fun of symbolism and aesthetics, so we utilize Satan as mythology's most fitting mascot for what we're about. Listen to Satansplain. Learn more at satansplain.com. Why start your mornings early when you can sleep in late and wake up later to a freshly brewed cup of Radio Free Satan? Radio Free Satan is infernally roasted with a complex taste to suit your indulgence. It's sinful. That's why it tastes great. So pour yourself another helping of this podcast and others at RadioFreeSatan.com. You have been listening to The Devil's Mischief on Radio Free Satan. This has been my dedication to Gallagher, a comedian whom I've always been a fan of, despite all of the hatred leveled at him for some reason or another. Thank you for letting me share some of his comedy with you, and thank you for letting me share a long rant at the beginning, too. And now, as promised, we're going to switch gears to George Carlin. Besides having done over a dozen HBO specials and a dozen, over well, dozens of albums, not to mention starring in movies and doing his live stand-up shows around the U.S. every year. George Carlin also wrote a few books before he passed away in 2008. His first book was one that not many know about. It was in the mid-1980s. He had a book called Sometimes a Little Brain Damage Can Help. That was an expression he also had printed on some of his t-shirts. 
The book was kind of like a tour book in that it was, you know, big with glossy pages, lots of pictures, but also lots of writings. Most people, though, when they think of George Carlin's first book, they think of, you know, the full print book without pictures, his book Brain Droppings in 1997. That was a proper book. And then in 2002, he had a follow-up book, Napalm and Silly Putty. A lot of the material in that book was not completely new, unlike as it was with Brain Droppings. In Napalm and Silly Putty, we find a lot of written versions of many routines that showed up previously on some album of Carlin's or another. And then finally, he had one more book after that called When Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops? Sometime... After that, there was a compilation book called An Orgy of George, which has everything from those last three books I mentioned, and 30 minutes, 30, 30 minutes, 30 pages of bonus material. There was also an autobiography that was, uh, he had been working on, was finished posthumously. So fast forward to 2021, Hatchet Publishing releases a different compilation book titled A Modern Man, The Best of George Carlin. This book has selected excerpts from Brain Droppings, Napalm, and Silly Buddy, and When Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops? Plus, also some of that bonus material from the back of uh, Orgy of George. So, it's a nice one-volume compilation, A Modern Man, The Best of George Carlin. As with any compilation, I don't expect the selections to exactly match my own personal favorites, but still, some great stuff here. There's a foreword written by comedian Lewis Black and then an introduction by George Carlin's longtime manager and close friend, Terry Hamza. Also, various black and white photos of Carlin throughout the book that uh, span his whole lifetime. For more details, you can go to georgecarlin.net. That is my personal website I created for all things George Carlin, georgecarlin.net, sharing my own Carlin knowledge with the world. I wrote up a page about the new book. So finally, here on The Devil's Mischief, I knew I wanted to play something from that book. You see, George Carlin recorded audiobook versions of his books. Not completely unabridged, unfortunately, but a lot of those pages recorded nonetheless. And I was looking for a segment I may have never played on The Devil's Mischief before, and there were several. I have chosen a three-part rant of his on political talk. And again, this shows up in the book. And uh, rather than doing more breaks, I'm just going to say goodbye for now and let this play for the rest of the show. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm surprised my voice has uh, managed to hold out. Hail the late, great Gallagher. Hail the late, great George Carlin. Two comedians who connected with me as a kid. And that I grew into and certainly shaped my uh, perception of comedy, my sense of humor. Hail Satan. Bye-bye. When people mention term limits to me, I usually tell them the only politicians' terms I would like to limit are the ones they use when speaking. They have an annoying language of their own. And I understand it's necessary for them to speak this way, because I know how important it is that as they speak... They not inadvertently say something. And according to the politicians themselves, they don't say things. They indicate them. As I indicated yesterday, and as I indicated to the president, and when they're not indicating, they're suggesting. 
the President has suggested to me that, as I indicated yesterday, sometimes instead of indicating or suggesting, they're outlining or pointing things out. The President outlined his plan to me, and in doing so, he pointed out that he has not yet determined his position. Politicians don't decide things. They determine them. Or they make judgments. That's more serious. When the hearings conclude, I will make a judgment. Or I may simply give you my assessment. I don't know. I haven't determined that yet. But when I do, I will advise the President. They don't tell, they advise. They don't answer, they respond. They don't read, they review. They don't form opinions, they determine positions. And they don't give advice, they make recommendations. I advise the President that I will not make a judgment until he has given me his assessment. Thus far, he hasn't responded. Once he responds to my initiative, I will review his response, determine my position, and make my recommendations. And so it is at long last that after each has responded to the other's initiatives, and after they have reviewed their responses, made their judgments, determined their positions, and offered their recommendations, they begin to approach the terrifying possibility that now they may actually be required to do something. Of course, that would be far too simple. So, rather than doing something, they address the problem. We're addressing the problem, and we will soon proceed to take action. Those are big activities in Washington, proceeding and taking action. But you may have noticed that as they proceed, they don't always take action. Sometimes they simply move forward. Moving forward is another one of their big activities. We're moving forward with respect to Social Security. With respect to is lawyer talk. Makes things sound more important, complicated. So they're not moving forward on Social Security. They're moving forward with respect to Social Security. But at least they're moving forward. To help visualize this forward motion, you may wish to picture the blistering pace of the land tortoise. Now, sometimes when they themselves are not moving forward, they're moving something else forward, namely the process. We're moving the process forward so we can implement the provisions of the initiative. Implement means put into effect, and an initiative is similar to a proposal. It's not quite a measure yet, but there's a possibility it may become a resolution. Now, one might ask, why do we need all these initiatives, proposals, measures, and resolutions? Well, folks, it should be obvious by now, we need them in order to meet today's challenges. As I'm sure you've noticed, our country no longer has problems. Instead, we face challenges. We're always facing challenges. That's why we need people who can make the tough decisions. Tough decisions like... How much money can I raise in exchange for my integrity so I can be re-elected and continue to work in government? Of course, no self-respecting politician would ever admit to working in government. They prefer to think of themselves as serving the nation. This is one of the more grotesque distortions to come out of Washington. They say, I'm serving the nation, and they characterize their work as public service. To help visualize this service they provide, you may wish to picture the activities that take place on a stud farm. Continuing this little review of the language of the elected, it seems that linguistically politicians hit their truest stride when they find themselves in trouble. At times like these, the explanations typically begin with a single word, miscommunication. How do you answer these felony charges, Senator? The whole thing was a miscommunication. But what about the tapes? They took them out of context. They twisted my words. Nice touch. A person who routinely spends his time bending and torturing the English language 
telling us that someone has twisted his words. But as the problem gets worse and his troubles increase, he's forced to take his explanation in a new direction. He now tells us that the whole thing has been blown out of proportion. And by the way, have you ever noticed with these blown out of proportion people that it's always the whole thing? Apparently no one has ever claimed that only a small part of something has been blown out of proportion. But as time passes and the evidence continues to accumulate, our hero suddenly changes direction and begins using public relations jujitsu. He says, we're trying to get to the bottom of this. We, suddenly, is on the side of the law. We're trying to get to the bottom of this so we can get the facts out to the American people. Nice, the American people. Always try to throw them in. It makes it sound as if you actually care. As the stakes continue to rise, our hero now makes a subtle shift and says, I'm willing to trust in the fairness of the American people. Clearly, he's trying to tell us something, that there may just be a little fire causing all the smoke. But notice, he's still at the I-have-nothing-to-hide stage. But then, slowly, I'm willing to trust in the fairness of the American people progresses to There is no credible evidence. And before long, we're hearing the very telling, no one has proven a thing. Now, if things are on track in this drama, and the standard linguistic path of the guilty is being followed faithfully, no one has proven a thing will precede the stage when our hero begins to employ that particularly annoying technique, ask yourself questions and then answer them. Did I show poor judgment? Yes. Was there inappropriate behavior? Yes. Do I wish this never happened? Of course. But did I break the law? That's not the issue. The calendar is marching, however, and it soon becomes clear that our friend is most likely quite guilty indeed. We know this because now he shifts into that sublime use of the passive voice. Mistakes were made. The beauty of mistakes were made is that it doesn't really identify who made them. You're invited to think what you wish. Bad advice? Poor staff work? Voodoo curse. But it's too late. Mistakes were made quickly becomes eventually I will be exonerated, which then morphs into I have faith in the American judicial system, and the progression ends with that plaintive cry, Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? Whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? Well, he's about to find out. Eventually, in full retreat and federal custody, he shuffles off in his attractive orange jumpsuit, and can be heard muttering that most modern of mea culpas, I just want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life. And to emphasize how sincere he is, he announces, I'm taking responsibility for my actions. How novel. Imagine taking responsibility. He says it as though it were a recently developed technique. Whenever I hear that sort of thing on the news, I always want to ask one of these I'm taking responsibility for my actions people, whether or not they'd be willing to take responsibility for my actions. You know, gambling debts, paternity suits, outstanding warrants. Can you help me out here, pal? Regarding this whole put-this-thing-behind-me idea in general, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to put this, I want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life, thing behind me and get on with my life. May I repeat that for you? I'd like to put this, I want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life thing behind me and get on with my life. 
I think one of the problems in this country is that too many people are screwing things up, committing crimes, and then getting on with their lives. What is really needed for public officials who shame themselves is ritual suicide. Harakiri. Like those Japanese business executives who mismanage corporations into bankruptcy, never mind the lawyers and the public relations and the press conferences. Get that big knife out of the kitchen drawer and do the right thing. To take up a thread from an earlier section of this Politico-Lingo trilogy, we noted at the time the fact that most politicians operate under the delusion that what they're doing is serving the nation. Of course, if they really feel this way, they're more than simply misinformed. They're obviously not playing with a full bag of jacks. So, citizens, a question. Do you think it's at all possible that these politicians whose judgment is so faulty that they actually believe they're serving the nation, might be expected to indulge occasionally in some, oh, I don't know, exaggerated patriotism? Huh? What do you think? Maybe? Huh? Well, fans, it's not just possible, it's downright inevitable. And should they be so indulging themselves on the 4th of July, you'll want to be sure to have hip boots and a shovel handy, because brown stuff is going to be piling up at an alarming rate. And I suggest you shovel fast, because your elected heroes will be squeezing every last ounce of counterfeit patriotism out of their blood-starved brains. And so, as you see them rushing madly across the landscape, pushing all the buttons marked red, white, and blue, be on the alert for phrases such as Old Glory, Main Street, the Stars and Stripes, the Heartland, all across this great land of ours, from Maine to California, and of course, on American soil. And don't forget all those freedom-loving people around the world who look to us as a beacon of hope. Those, I assume, would be the ones we haven't bombed lately. And you'd also better be ready to be reminded over and over that you live in a country that somehow fancies itself leader of the free world. Got that? Leader of the free world. I don't know when we're going to retire that stupid shit, but personally, I've heard it quite long enough. Because what exactly is the free world anyway? I guess it would depend on what you consider the non-free world. And I can't find a clear definition of that, can you? Where is that? Russia? China? For Christ's sakes, Russia has a better mafia than we do now. And China is pirating Lion King DVDs and selling dildos on the Internet. They sound pretty free to me. Here are some more jingoistic variations you need to be on the lookout for. The greatest nation on earth. The greatest nation in the history of the world. And the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. That last one is usually thrown in just before we bomb a bunch of brown people. Which is every couple of years. And bombing brings me to the language used by politicians when referring to our armed forces. Now, normally, during peacetime, Politicians will refer to members of the military as our young men and women around the world. But since we're so rarely at peace for more than six months at a time, during wars, Senator Patriot and his colleagues are fully prepared to raise the stakes. By the way, don't you just love that word, colleagues? It makes them sound so, I don't know, legitimate. And so it is that in times of combat, 
our young men and women around the world quickly become our brave young fighting men and women stationed halfway around the world in places whose names they can't pronounce. And for added emotional impact, they may also mention that these military folks spend a lot of time wondering if they'll ever see their loved ones again. That one gets people right in the belly button. And should the speaker be going for maximum emotional effect, he will deliver the above passage, substituting sons and daughters for men and women. And isn't that reference, places whose names they can't pronounce, a lovely little piece of subtle racism? That's an all-American red meat bonus they throw in for you. Here's another way politicians express their racist geographic chauvinism. Young men and women stationed in places the average American can't find on a map. I've always thought it was amusing, and a bit out of character, for a politician to go out of his way to point out the limited amount of intelligence possessed by the American people, especially since his job security depends on that very same limitation. It would also appear to contradict that other well-traveled and inaccurate standby. The American people are a lot smarter than they're given credit for. Amazingly, politicians have mastered the art of uttering those words with a perfectly straight face, even though the proposition is stated precisely backward. Judging from the results of focus groups, polls, and election returns that I've seen, and watching the advertising directed at Americans, I'd say the American people are a lot dumber than they're given credit for. As one example, just look at the individuals they keep sending to their state houses and to Washington to represent them. Look also at what they've done to their once beautiful country and its once beautiful landscape. Wrapping up this modest review of patriotic political language, I think it's safe to conclude that the degree of a politician's insincerity can best be measured by how far around the world our soldiers are and whether or not any of them is able to pronounce the name of the place and whether or not their neighbors back home can find it on a map. Dawn, that's the end.